This program is a proud member of Univaz. Unified, unique, voices. Learn more at univazpods.net. Hello, my name's Patrick, and I'm a Scream Queen. I'm a Scream Queen, and so are you! Hello again, my beautiful screamers, and welcome to another episode of Scream Queens. It's the podcast where horror gets gay. This is episode 13, season 13. Double unlucky for some, but super lucky for you. Because tonight, we are discussing an utterly demented yet visually sumptuous tale of ancient justice in a modern world. Travis Stevens' 2022 opus, A Wounded Fawn, starring Josh Rubin and Sarah Lind. This movie is going to drag us all to Hades, so I enlisted a very special guest who can definitely help us find our way back. He's a performance artist, he's a visual artist, he's a burlesque dancer, he's a soap manufacturer, but he's also our resident on Greek mythology, the fabulous Matt Knife. But before we do any of that, please allow me to introduce myself. My name is Patrick Walsh, and ever since 2010, I've been your guide to the weird and wonderful world of horror movies. But you're going to have to see them. They're my very, very gay little eyes. Ominous thunderclap. So hello, hello, everyone. Wonderful to see you. Can I just say you look fabulous? What have you been doing? Have you done something with your hair? Whatever it is, keep it up. So what's been going on at Scream Queens headquarters, you ask? Not much. Things, of course, have been quiet. The big change around here is that I quit vaping. Yay, good for me. I quit on February 1st, and it's been going very smoothly, surprisingly smoothly. It's been shockingly easy, but evidently I don't sound the same as I used to. Evidently, there's been a big change in my voice, and it's for the better. I don't hear it, but for the past couple of weeks, every time I answer the phone, people don't realize it's me. They think they have a wrong number. They don't. It's me. I don't hear it, but if I sound weird, that's why. Patrick, you always sound weird because you are weird. Why, thank you for noticing. But everything is good, and Secret Agent Boots has decided to grace us with her presence today. She's curled up on the desk, supervising my every move, like she always does all the time. Isn't that right, Secret Agent Boots? Yes, it is. She bit me. Okay, I deserved it. Anyway, tonight's movie, A Wounded Fawn, is a doozy, and I cannot wait to get into the meat of the show and talk about it with you, but... We got to set some things up beforehand. First of all, the movie is currently streaming on Shudder. I cannot recommend this movie enough. I cannot recommend how much you need to watch the movie before you proceed with this episode. Normally, when I tell you to watch stuff in advance, it's because we're going to spoil the hell out of whatever movie we're talking about. But this movie's not quite that. What happens in this film... Well, the film is in two halves. The first half is very much grounded in reality. Then we hit a certain point and then we go diving headfirst into a nightmarish hellscape. And like all your finer nightmarish hellscapes, visually, it's surreal as fuck. When logic and proportion falls sloppy dead, so does linear storytelling, which makes it very difficult for me to describe to you what's going on without you having seen it already. Like I said, we take a deep tour through hell. The visuals are nightmarish and surreal. And much like the other movies that I've talked about the the past few episodes, there's so much bubbling under the surface here that 
it would be very difficult for Matt and I to be able to walk you through the story coherently and also dig at what's underneath. So we had to choose one or the other, and we got to go for the meat that's underneath. So if you're listening without having watched the movie, you're probably not going to follow very well. But before we kick things off, there is one thing you need to know. Yes, this movie stars Joss Rubin. Yes, this movie stars Sarah Lynn. But the real stars in the movie are the Araneas. Patrick, who the fuck are the Araneas? The Araneas are three Greek goddesses of vengeance and wrath and retribution. If you have committed a crime that is so heinous, so unspeakable, that human justice cannot possibly punish you for it. When the gods themselves look at what you've done and say, oh no, but even they can't deal with it, the gods send in the Araneas. In fact, the Araneas were so feared by the residents of ancient Greek that they dared not speak their names for fear the Araneas might hear them wake up and be really pissed off. You probably know them better as the Furies. Why am I telling you this? Because they are major players in this movie. They show up in Act 3 and they're the ones who are, well, that's what they do. They drag people to hell. Matt and I talk about them a lot, but I realized we always called them the Furies. But when I was pulling the sound clips from the movie, I noticed they're always calling them the Araneas. So I just wanted to let you know, Araneas and the Furies are the same thing. So don't be confused. Even though I feel like the more I'm trying to make you less confused, I'm confusing you more. And that only means one thing, that it means that it's time for me to play the trailer for a wounded fawn. Bring on that knife, and let's get down to business. You have very good taste in art. Well, thank you. Do you work for a gallery or a private collector? I have plans this weekend. The mystery. Yeah, mystery man. What's right? What mystery man? I brought that record I was telling you about. Oh, great. To art and beauty. And the night ahead. Experienced anything weird here before? I'm really looking forward to our time here together. So the film that I have chosen to discuss for this week, A Wounded Fawn, is a wonderful medley of so many things. On the surface, it's your standard woman in peril at a cabin with the boyfriend that's not what he seems. We've seen this a thousand times before, but underneath is the swirling underworld of Greek theater, Greek tragedy, Greek mythology, art history, performance art. You name it, there's so much happening. And for a guest, I figured I need someone that's an expert in all these things, who's an expert in the visual arts and in performance art and in Greek mythology. And he also makes soap as a bonus. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of my GNCs, wherever you may be, please welcome back to the Scream Queen's microphone, the fabulous Matt Knife. Hey, 
yes, Patrick, you are a great curator because I would be offended if you didn't ask me to talk about this movie. <laughs> Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. You know, I already said this to you before we were recording, but I am so excited to talk about this movie. And like, as it was, I was watching it, I was just so humbled that like- Matt, you were the only person I even considered to come on to talk about this yeah, movie. I mean- any, I don't know if you remember this, but the first time I watched this movie months ago- Right after it, I texted you and I asked you a question. I asked you that if in Greek mythology, the Furies and the Fates were the same thing. And you were like, no. Well, now you know why. It was because of this movie. I was thinking of you even then because if there's a question of Greek mythology, who am I going to turn to? Yeah, I mean, any... This is your wheelhouse. Yeah, like, any conversation to talk about mythology, witchcraft, like, you know, butt stuff, I'm here for. So, I mean, <laughs> it, uh, I mean, this movie didn't have any butt stuff, but that's okay, because it tickled my prostate in other ways. So. <laughs> but yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like, you know, I think the first place to start, maybe, Patrick, I'll suggest, is with the Greeks, because... I always say the Greeks got storytelling right from the beginning. I used to, I tell my theater students this, my costume students this, that like burlesque people, like Greek storytelling, the human condition has not changed at all. So in my, you know, I have two degrees in theater. So in uh, my undergraduate mentor's name is Dean Mogul. And Dean Mogul is genius. And I mean, he's very Jungian, very Joseph Campbell, like human beings, are exactly the same in ancient Egypt as they are now. But the Greeks were super special. So he recognized in me very quickly that I got Greek theater, I got Greek mythology. I mean, hell, I've got Mercury on my arm, like, and Hecate and Gaia. So I got to design Antigone as my senior thesis. I was so happy that they gave that to me because, again, it was Greek and I, and I got it. And, you know, we were also able to explore. And that's the thing is like you could set ancient Greece or a Greek story in Egypt in 15th century Spain in 2022, vague, Jallo-inspired you know, it's just like, I mean, it's so primitive and sophisticated and simple. There's a reason the stories have lasted for thousands and thousands of years. And they're going to continue to. Like, even if human beings work past this stuff, they're still going to find it entertaining because they'll either find it entertaining on a, oh, I went through that phase in kindergarten and then I realized it didn't work. Or they're going to look and be like, hey, guess what? It's not changed, but I guess this is how you cope. Like you said, there are also universal truths still there, even if it's corny, even if it falls out of style. Universal truths and primitive motivations that are just inherently human. That's true. Anyway, okay. So before we go f too far down the rabbit hole without helping our listeners through, Matt, since you are the guest, please give me a nice, tight 30-second summary of the basic plot of a wounded fawn. The clock starts now. Um, serial killer takes women to his upstate or fire island place to murder them, and the Furies come and kill him. Well done. Well done. I mean, basically, <laughs> like, <laughs> basically, it basically, except it's New Jersey, which makes it even worse because, like, man, you gotta take me all the way out of New York to kill me in New Jersey. <laughs> oh, oh, the shame, the shame, the stigma. 
I um yeah yeah I realized that when the movie went by that like Cherry Grove did they say I, I think they go someplace Cherry something and so I think uh, in my mind I assumed that might have been Fire Island if they went to Fire Island they would have to take a ferry do you think a Greek story is going to leave out a ferry <laughs> that's what yeah that make that, it well, and, yeah no it's the it's it's a New Jersey based okay movie, that makes so sense okay so a wounded fawn uh. 2022 was directed by Travis Stevens. Travis Stevens, we've talked about on the show before. He um, directed Girl on the Third Floor and uh, Jacob's Wife with the fabulous Barbara Crampton. Uh, he produced a whole bunch of other stuff. But the thing is, until this movie, I was not a fan of Travis Stevens. Both of these movies, these, his other movies, I said, I'm curious to see what you'll do next. But this wasn't it for me. Just, I found his film style flat, obvious, just and filmed like a tennis match. Like every time it was a conversation, it was like, line camera switch line camera switch line camera switch line camera switch this movie's not mm. that <laughs> this movie i kind of definitely I kind not of that. feel that way about rob zombie like i don't think you're terrible but i understand that sometimes you're hit or miss for me so i get that but like i said these are these were his the other two things were the first thing he did people grow and i said there's something there you've got something and this movie landed completely for me. Um, and it was written by Nathan Faudry. Hi, Nathan Faudry. Nathan Faudry, friend of the show, introduced to me by fa the fabulous Alan Rowe Kelly, writer, director, star of Site 13, which is going to be available fairly soon. Sweetheart of a guy. And what a script. What a script working on so many levels. Yeah, the, I could imagine that this is a script, especially when we get to like the weird owl decapitation, you know, when the when the shits really hit the fan and the Furies are there and they're in whatever liminal space. Like, I'm sure it was like this much writing, like I'm doing like very little between my thumb and forefinger here for your listeners. But it's one of those things in a production meeting, you're going to sit down and be like, you have to talk like hours about this much text. Two lines of text, 30,000 pages. Pages of storyboard exactly so i could see how yeah it's a very sophisticated script yes and it's deceptively simple because i'm looking at reviews and people don't get it people are not seeing past the obvious which is sad because it's staring you right in the face well and it's also just so relevant to like our, what's happening now you know me too how men and women interact with each other what vengeance looks like the difference between vengeance and retribution <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. These, these finer points. The thing is, the the first half of the movie, where it's all very grounded in reality, had, had it not been so well written and the actress so engaging, like their banter what was was keeping me in, I was part of me wanted to turn it off because I just felt like I've seen this movie before. This woman's going to go through hell. I like her too much. I don't want to see that happen. And literally when it got to the point, I said, you know what? I think I'm done. Which is when they pulled the rug out from underneath me and the whole movie changed. And I screened it for people the other night, and I felt that same thing in the room happening. Like, you know what? People, like, starting to bail. Like, you know, I'm not really into this. I'm like, wait, literally 30 more seconds. Yeah. It's all going to change. Yeah. And I would and I would say that the pacing of the movie is very well done for that reason. Because it's, like, right when, like, because there was the one moment, like, after he gets hit with the statue, and he's, like, in the mirror, and he's, like, doing first aid to himself. And I was like, I don't want to sit here and watch you, like, stitch up your face. And, like, you know, the close-up shots. And it's just, like, it gets torture porny. I mean, because I think I've told you I'm, I, I do not even consider torture porn horror, because I think it's cheap. <sighs> I mean, I have a lot to say about whether or not things like that should exist in our 
world, but, um, you know, it's not for me. So I guess that's the simplest way to say it. So I was kind of like, Oh my God, are you really going to go there? Like, are we going to have to watch this for like five minutes? And then it was like about the time when I was about to flip through it, like it grabbed the remote, it was over. And I'm like, okay, thank you. Like, cause like, you know how much I love Dario Argento. And so, but that's kind of the thing I don't like about Argento is that like, I know that that's what people love about him is the murder scenes are long and graphic and blah, blah, blah. That's actually not what I like about Argento. (laughs) So there are times even watching his movies, I pick up the remote. I love that you also brought up Argento because this movie also has a very Italian feel to it at points. It's definitely Greek, but there's something visually going on that's Italian. It's the Romans, so. All right. If it's not Greek mythology, it's Roman mythology. Right. It's the same thing with different names. Exactly. And so that's the thing about Giallo or Gallo. Um, I've heard it pronounced both ways. I'll probably go back and forth. But like Gallo is sort of a hearkening back to that like Roman, you know, brutality. Because I mean, think about it this way. Their their culture was so violent and And I mean, they would see graphic brutality, blood, violence daily. I mean, they had entertainment. That's the Colosseum. You know, if it wasn't hardcore sex, it was extreme violence and food and, you know, very heathenistic. That's like, you know, I am Italian, so it's in your blood. Like, you know, it's that stories, those the ancestors are there. So I think making it a gallo inspired feeling instilled a timelessness to it because like when you watch rocky horror picture show which is kind of that same jello era like there's a timelessness to it like you look at it and you're like okay that could be 2022 it could be 1975 it could be 1985 it could be 1940 exactly because i think a lot of people that are argento fans are jello fans and when they try to go make a film they're like oh it's all about the violence and it's all about the you know, the, the close-ups and the brutality and the soundtrack. And I'm like, well, it's really about the composition, like the scenes where, you know, she falls down and it's like all the blood and the blood is super, super red and thick and fake, you know, it's theater, it's not real. So because of that heightenedness of it, along with the compositional shots and the pacing and the music, it creates this atmosphere of eeriness. And, you know, this movie exists in so much liminal space. And so you have to kind of almost hypnotize the audience into being there. And I think that that's the thing about Jallo, or at least Argento, that a lot of people just aren't able to, like, grab and this and this and these people did like they definitely got it while being jallo but then also like referencing nightmare on elm street scream the shining evil dead you know without being scary movie well was something that something that Matt and I were saying before we started recording it's not like Ryan Murphy where if he makes some sort of cultural reference he has to point at it And make sure that you see it. Look what I did here. This movie doesn't do that. This is Dario Argento because that's cool, right? Like, it's cool. I'm cool, right? right? Because I like Argento and that's like a personality. Did you hear the soundtrack? (laughs) Did you know what movie that's from? That's the soundtrack from Suspiria, which I'm playing in a scene that has nothing to do with Suspiria, but I'm making the reference, so that makes me cool. No, this movie doesn't do that. Everything's layered into it. It's not just one thing. Like every, I said to Matt before we started, that every prop on set is telling you a visual story. Everything that you see, all the characters' names are referencing something else. And you might not know what it is, but that's how much care 
went into the telling of the story. So if it's just a story about a girl getting killed at a cabin, why put this much work into it? Because there's, there's if you take the chance and go digging, there's yummy treasure underneath. All right. One of the things I love about this movie, Matthew, is that it's broken up into acts because it's theater. Why don't we walk through act one? Or actually, it's not even act one. It's almost a prologue. Tell me about this auction that we're at. Tell me about this piece of statuary that the whole movie hinges on. So they on. have evidently found this statue of the theories that are about to pounce on their the person that they're enacting vengeance on. And Time. Who are the Furies, Matthew? The Furies are entities that were created. And in this version, it was from when Kronos castrated Uranus or Uranus. In that castration, drops of blood hit either the earth or the sea. And from those drops of blood rose the Furies, which are three women. So they were born to avenge and to torment those who kill kin. And um, so that's the biggest crime in Greek world is you do not murder your family. Um, but then to extrapolate that, I also think the Furies represent feminine energy. So I think men that are horrible to women also have to answer to the Furies. By the mythology of this movie, that's what they're here for. That's what we're given. If you knew nothing about them going in, that's what you're told at the beginning in this opening monologue that the auctioneer does. He explains who they are and what they do and why they're here. The wrath of the Erinaeus. Punisher of men for crimes against the natural order. Goddesses of vengeance and retribution in Greek and Roman mythology. Summoned by victims seeking justice. Pursuers and tormentors of the wicked until they atone for their crimes. From the blood that spilled on the earth during the castration of the god Uranus, the Erinaeus were born. Megara, the grudging. Alecto, the unceasing, and Tisiphone, punisher of murderers. Gentlemen, I encourage you to be on your best behavior around them. So during this movie, I'm sitting here like, oh my God, like I had to light, I had to pause the movie, light all of my altar candles, <laughs> leave offerings. I'm like, I cannot open this energy into my home and not like be like, okay, like I hear you. You're, you're obviously, you got stuff to say. There's a statue of these three goddesses of vengeance tormenting a male who has sinned against women. That's what's in the statue. It's gorgeous, it's fabulous. Although the artist is unknown, the authenticity and period of the work have been confirmed by both the Soho Institute of Fine Arts and the New York Preservation Society and comes with appropriate certification. Those who have seen it in our offices have been entranced by both the drama and power this marvelous sculpture conveys. And with that, I'd like to start the bidding at $50,000. And there's an auction. And so, of course, I feel like it's such a comment on the wealthy is like none of the people that are actually going to buy the art are actually physically there. So it's a bunch of people standing around with cell phones, whispering into them, like, you know, do you want to go higher? Do you want to go higher? So you definitely get a sense of Bruce, the lead character who's there to buy this for a client or himself. Like, we don't really like know. And we you get a sense of that, like, kind of like entitled 
like, I want this thing and I'm going to take it, you know, it's like, you know, I have money, I am good looking, I'm, you know, white cis privilege, you know, you could pile all that on top of it. And it's very heated and it goes back and forth. And um, what's the name of the lady that ends up winning the auction? Yeah, it's, it's a fierce battle between Bruce Ernst and Katie Hornum. And she wins for her client. And you can tell that Bruce is kind of not happy about it. But the thing is, is the auctioneer does go on about how authentic this is, how rare it is, how beautiful, like, I mean, for Grecian. From the Hellenistic period, it's ancient and it's been verified. It's by the, by the museum. Also important. This is like, you know, a very significant piece of art history and artistry and whatever. But then also the tension that this statue is charged. Like it is very, like there's a um, ritualistic offering like, or altarpiece or something to it. It's tantalizing. So she wins. Okay. So she gets, she gets it and she gives it to her dealer and everything's fine. I mean, she gets it to her, her broker and everything's cool. That's that's the, movie. the movie. I mean, it's all about just it's, a, like, it's a fabulous art piece. It has a party. They drink wine. It's great. great. It yeah. is to be rich and you can just throw money at things you want. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I think it, it, that is very deliberate. I think it is kind of a take on capitalism and like rich people, luxury items, all that well, stuff. This movie, yeah, this movie is, uh, uh, but I don't, I don't want to go too down this rabbit hole just yet, but it's also a commentary on art and the state of the art and how it makes the correlation between art collectors and serial killers. They see something pretty and they want it. Yes. Just for me. It should be in a museum where everybody should be able to enjoy this, but I want it just for me. Yes. Well, and I also feel like now is a good time to bring this up too, is that I feel like this movie is very political without being super, like you watch a lot of stuff that's made now and it's so diversity bingo. They wear the topics on their sleeve. Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. We're leading, we're leading with all the issues that yeah. we're going to talk about. I yes, mean, I think continue. this probably goes without saying, but, you know, I am a pro-equality person, so I don't have a problem with, um, I think art is a powerful way of educating the public and to get morality across. And to start discussions, especially, I just had this uh, conversation last episode about UMA. One of my guests brought up how it brings up this whole Korean culture thing that nobody talks about and women who survived the uh, World War II Comfort women. Like, I don't know anything about that, but all of a sudden this movie opened up a conversation about it that I wouldn't have had exactly. otherwise. Like, if you told me I was going to see a movie about the culture, the the comfort women, I'd be like, eh, oh, I'm going to see Sandra Oh get tormented by a ghost? Let's go. So I feel like there's a nuance that's that I was afraid was being lost. And now seeing this movie, I'm like, no, really the answer is go back to basics, go back to the Greeks. They knew how to like this story, like the Furies are, are just inherently political because it's about justice and how justice is enacted. So I thought that was great. And the auctioneer even says like, uh, Oh, try Stephanie, Avenger of murders of women, women. Yep. Well, and I feel like, I mean, cause Scott and I had, a lot of, we talked about this movie a lot and then i invited my friend trent over to watch it last night because i wanted to watch it twice because you recommended that and uh trent is also a witch i sat down with trent and when it was over i was like okay so men are physically stronger than women so because of that as a man i take that as then we are responsible we are protectors not in the sense that, like, you know, we're going to stand in front of women and be like, I'm going to protect you because you're too weak and blah, blah, blah. No, it's not that. It's just that sometimes 
being six foot walking my sister to her car is enough to keep a dude from coming up and talking to her or, you know, I mean, just my physical presence is enough to psychologically deflect someone. So I feel that again, the meditation and what you just said is that men are supposed to be protectors, not abusers. So once that trust is betrayed, then the goddess has to, you know, I mean, it's like, okay, mom, like she's got to slap you across the face. And if that doesn't work, She's got to do something else. So, I mean, again, it's like, you know, that mother energy, that goddess energy is maternal, is nurturing and loving and caring, but sometimes it has to be cruel and and punishing. Bruce Ernst shows up at this other broker's house. What are you doing here? I, I know this is highly unprofessional. Unprofessional? More like illegal. What, what Did you follow me home? Please hear me out, okay? I'm, I'm just in town for tonight's event and my clients insisted I make you another offer for the Araneas bronze. The answer is no, that's okay. I will gladly fuck off down the road, but they're willing to pay double the purchase price your clients did, plus throw in an additional $25,000 bonus for you. Why? Because they see something beautiful and they want it. Your client will literally double their investment overnight. I'd also like 20% of your commission. Jesus, you play rough. You're the one knocking on my door. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair. Okay, deal. She winds up getting murdered. Well, it's like, it's so disturbing because, you know, if that's the thing I love about this movie is these are not stupid women. These are not like, these are hardworking, focused, intelligent, smart, and very attractive, beautiful women. And so, I mean, she opens the door and she's like, you know, what the hell are you doing here? And he's like, all right, makes this offer, like triples the offer. And then on top, it's like, you know, I'm going to give you $2,500 on top of it. And then she turns around and she goes, well, I want 20% of your commission too. And I'm like, you go girl, you get that. You, you, you like, absolutely. So then, you know, once they seal the deal, she lowers her guard because I mean, he is like an attractive dude. And I mean, he did say all the right things. He's like, listen, you know, I'm just here for an offer. I know this is unprofessional. And I'm sure this is a small circle of people in this line of work. Exactly. You know him. You see him at every auction. Exactly. It's just, it's, it's just Bruce. Well, and also that this is sort of how the art world works. Like, yeah, that's how it works. This is what I totally stood up and took notice. Just before he kills her, he has this vision of this gigantic red owl <laughs> just standing and watching him. In the bathroom with the red light, like, which is so yeah. Argento, which I love. Yeah. Um, the owl shows up and kind of like, you know, I guess that's the cue to murder. But I studied criminal psychology. I'm like, yep, this is right. A lot of killers do have that image in their head of the person they're doing this for. The Oh, the bad part of me. Yeah. It's not me. It's this thing that lives in my head. It's like Dexter and his shadow person, whatever he called them. My shadow traveler. Or the, I don't remember what he called them. I'm like, oh, that's his, that's his shadow token. This is his shadow. This is who he, who's telling him to kill. It's it's uh, Son of Sam and the dog next door. Well, this is, this is what's going on. Well, it's the shadow self. Like, you know, that's, again, that's very Jungian. That's very, you know, universal collective con unconscious i love when we finally saw the weapon that he kills this woman with that it's t it's not the freddy krueger claws exactly mm -hmm. 
But it is. The claws are more in the palm. It, but they're more in the palm. They're more like talons. Yeah. Like an owl. But they're also made of brass. And the Furies were also known for their brass scourges. That mm. was their weapon. One of the things I want to talk about, too, like, oh, I didn't want to go down the sword so soon. But the affront to the Furies, I don't think, like, started in the scene, before, like, even before this woman was killed. Just the fact that a serial killer who targets women to collect them has the audacity to buy that statue mm-hmm. and kill a woman for that statue, a woman that's a statue that's supposed to be about defending women. One of the things the Greek gods do not stand for is hubris. Right. Well, but that's sort of, I think, a theme in this is that, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's this meme going around lately and I've kind of said it, I think already, like if I cut ties with you, it's probably because you handed me the scissors. Yeah. And yeah. I think that there's a little bit of that too, where it's like, you know, okay, this guy hates women so much and there's so much hubris there that he kind of is like, well, I could take on these furies if I needed to. And I could, you know, I'm going to get just close enough. I'm going to edge this just enough. And I mean, and you see it towards the end, like in the bargaining scene too, you know, this guy really, I think, thought up until the 11th hour, he'd be able to tame these women, these furies. And I'm like, girl, no. (laughs) I mean, it's not like he thinks he's going to fight off the furies. He doesn't believe in the furies. He just wants that thing. It's pretty and what it represents. And it wouldn't be, it would just be another notch in his belt. Another three, they can't come and get me because they don't exist. Another thing I've conquered, look at me i'm a man mm-hmm. this guy kind of you kind of have to wonder if this guy knew what he was doing like from the beginning foolish mortal why would you think gods from three thousand years ago are coming for you now you wouldn't think it's i mean not a, not a conscious love but the thing is what i enjoy too listeners this is a very hard mo- movie to talk about because there is so much going on so hopefully you're gonna w- watch this like we're barely in the second scene <laughs> I, we're not we're barely that's what i'm saying this is gonna be 14 hours long so i'm just trying to like do what I can to condense and just say why you should be watching this movie and what you should be watching Al for is that a lot of people dismiss the third act. He hits his head. It's all happening in his head. I suggested to Matt, watch it again because there are omens importance that happen in the beginning of portions of the movie that suggest, no, this is not happening in his head. He has angered the gods, particularly with Meredith, his next victim, who's fabulous. She... Because at the beginning of the movie, we get a physical description of what the Furies looked like or how they were often depicted. One of them is, is often portrayed with the head of a dog. One has the hair of snakes. And the other one, that I don't remember. The what torches. Of, but the torches. Is, um, yeah. The first time when she's going on her date, when he's picking her up from the house, the second she lays eyes on him and is about to walk to the car, the big the big scary Doberman runs across and then you know, and disappears. Bruce? <laughs> And that happens again later. Mm-hmm. And later on at the cabin, like when they first get there, she hears somebody say, leave. Leave. What? Huh? That wasn't you? I didn't say anything. All right. The windows are rattling. The doors over opening by themselves. She's having visions. Like at one point she goes outside and the wind chimes are like, clang, 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 clang. But there's no wind. Like, they're not at full power yet. They're like, you have to go, girl. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> We're doing everything that we can right now until he until he transpires the horrible act. We can't take, take it out on him. So please, we're trying to save you. But she's seeing him, not him. So this is happening. The thing about the dogs is, again, it's Hecate, the hounds of Hecates. And I don't know if you noticed this, but there is a shot. It happens twice. There's a shot of, like, a wood panel 
and the wood panel has like the the grain sort of looks like a dog. So you do get a sense that there is like, you know, the guides are watching, like her animals are watching, like, um, but to back it up a second, because we missed something that's very gay and very fun. So, you know, after after um, Katie gets murdered, like, we cut to um, Meredith and her girlfriends in a gallery. And so, again, it's three women. And they're three all women. impeccably dressed, beautiful. And, again, it's kind of timeless. Like, it kind of looks 70s. It could be 20s. It could be 2000s. 22 and they're having a very sex in the city moment like you know she's talking about she's going to bruce uh to go to his cabin in the woods and by the way meredith is meredith is just she was just seen her in a therapy session she is out of an abusive relationship and she had just got the cop she this is her first this is a big step back into the dating scene yeah it was good for a while but it's because he kept that part of himself hidden abusive men are skilled at that has he tried contacting you again? No, I think he knows it's over now. He'll, I mean, he knows I'll call the cops if he shows up again. He learned that lesson last time. And what have you learned, Meredith? I've learned not to absolve a man for his transgressions against me. Bravo. And the therapy session, I think, I'm really glad that we, thank you for reminding me, because that's also a really important detail in this movie, because the therapist at one point, she says that's very common with abusive men. And so, I mean the theme of abusive men is, is really rot and like psych mental health is really like, you know, we're destigmatizing mental health and, you know, breaking down what toxic relationships look like. So I think that it was definitely purposeful that that scene was included because it does come later. The Furies use therapy against the guy, which is really awesome. I have learned not to absolve men for their transgressions against me. That was her. <laughs> that was what the, the, the therapist was like. Excellent. That's what I've been waiting for you to say. Yes. And, and it turns out in the end, she don't. Well, <laughs> she ain't and, absolving I mean, nobody for nothing. And that was the thing is it's like it kind of also is what, again, makes it tragic because you're like, here's this character who – finally has come into her worth and it and has a key to the door and then like it's murdered right when they're at the door <laughs> or at least attempted. Yeah. But yeah. um well that's that's the thing about the gods too. They do love it when your metal's tested. Yes. Prove yourself, honey. Yes. Prove yourself. Um I do want to take a moment and take a shout out to her two actors because for a while now it turns into a two act uh, a, a two person play. And um our Meredith is Sarah Lynn. She's brilliant. I love her. It was a really good performance by everyone in the movie. Like really grounded, well acted. never a victim, always in control. Like like refuses to let herself be gaslit by this guy. Even before, like like almost immediately knows there's something wrong. Like, but and she's not letting herself gaslight herself or be gaslighted by anybody else. She's immediately on the on the pickup that something's wrong. And I love that. You were talking about like it's a she's handed lots of signs from the universe. Like you know, there's the leave, the wind chimes, the dog, the bat hitting the window, like or the snake or whatever it was. We never really find out. Like seeing the person in the backyard, but then. Compared with real life things like, hey, you have that statue that you shouldn't have. Yes. Oh my God. What? <laughs> yeah. The wrath of the Aranae is pretty gruesome, isn't it? I love the drama in it. I, I think there are absolutely uh, 
terrifying. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. This came through our museum recently to establish provenance. Hellenistic period. I, I can't believe you have this. It's a really expensive piece. It's a reproduction, actually. No. Yeah. That is a hell of a reproduction. Yeah. Because she's an art expert. She's like, no, this isn't a reproduction. Sarah fabulous. I love that she's serving Aubrey Plaza energy without the bitch. I don't know if this, I'm sure it's conscious because everything was conscious. The outfit that she's wearing for this date, the black turtleneck with the huge medallion was serving me Theodora realness from the haunting. I love it. With the, like, give me, give me that bisexual energy. Yes. (laughs) Powerful bisexual psychic energy. Love it. Works for me. Yeah. Well, and like, here's the thing is I feel like this, this situation is very relatable. Like, you know, I mean, especially like if you live in New York or something like that, it's like, you know, you have a friend who has a house upstate or in Jersey or, you know, in Connecticut or whatever, and they invite you up for the weekend. And, you know, especially if like sex is maybe going to be involved and good food and wine and smoking weed and good music. Like she brings those, that LP and she's really excited to provide. She packed her brand new sexy bra and sexy panties and still had the tag on them. She has, she's ready to go. Yeah, Like, I mean, she was there for a good but weekend. Not committed, like she, not committed enough to cut the tags off yet. I was just like, I'm not yeah. sure about them yet. I might still have to return these. I love, I love the little detail, yeah. but well, but also the scene, Another detail that we're missing here too, and I almost missed it in the second viewing, but then Trent was like, wait a minute, something weird just happened. And we were talking because like, there's so much going on in the movie and we're like, oh my God, like blah, blah, blah. So we had to pause it and all this, but the scene where they go through whatever tunnel when they're leaving the city and he looks at her and goes, I like the intimacy. I love this part. What part? The intimacy. My favorite part. (laughs) And that just makes it even more disgusting because this is another thing is there's only a handful of movies where we know who the killer is from the beginning. Like, and so it is a very nuanced, different way of telling a horror movie and it creates a different type of tension. But I really am glad that we went back to that because I felt that that line was probably one of the most important lines in contextualizing his character and just how disgusting he is that he gets off on the fact that this person thinks it's a date. So this other person thinks that this tension that's mounting is probably going to result in sex. Oh, there'll be penetration, but not the way you think. Not a joke. That was not a joke. That is literally what I meant. So that's why I, you know, it's like when you're, especially at this moment when they're in the cabin together and you're just like, this guy is so fucked up. Again, this strong, intelligent, very sexy, very attractive woman with a lot to offer. She's like a sacrifice, I guess, to whatever, like this deep thing in his brain. To the red eye. To the Red L. I cannot go a step further without throwing credit toward Josh Rubin, our Bruce. So good, so charming, mm-hmm. so layered, so able to go where this script needs to take you. Exactly. To be, to be as alpha male and then to be as vulnerable 
as well at the same, eventually. Yeah, and he could get it. Like, you have to go, I understand why you're not running Meredith because he's a nice guy. He is doing everything right. And those little, those little alarm bells in your head might just be your past. He's he's a good looking guy. Mm-hmm. He obviously has money. He's obviously career driven. Like he doesn't need a mommy. Like I mean, like there's definitely he cooks. He owns property. The, what we're talking about now is basically what like the current conversation around true crime dramatizations is. Like for instance, I got about halfway through Dahmer. Okay, why are we telling the story again? You're making this sexy. And I mean, I get that Dahmer and Bundy were good looking guys. And that was part of why it was a success. They were successful killers, but you can tell this story without making people want to fuck Evan Peters as Dahmer. Yeah. And so the example I'll give you is when Andrew Cananan killed Versace, I was like, Mm. maybe 13, 14. And I remember the pictures of him were going around the news and I was sitting with my mom and I was just so shocked. And I was like, he's so good looking. And my mom was like, well, Matt, the devil doesn't show up with a tail and pitchfork. Like the devil sometimes looks like, you know, is very attractive and that's how they, they get what they need. So I do think that that is an important lesson to teach people about, you know, like, when someone is attractive and sexy, you sort of lower your inhibitions and what you're willing to tolerate. So, I mean, they say the line between a consent violation and, you know, in a come on is how attracted the person is to the other person. Mm. So in that world, then it's like, you know, someone's more likely to tolerate like, you know, getting touched inappropriately from someone that's sexy versus someone that's not. So I think we have to sort of be like, hey, wait a minute. No, the good looking guy is a creeper because he touched you without asking the other dude who's maybe not so attractive asked you. You said, no, thank you. Walked away. He's not a creeper. You're just not into him. And that's fine. You know, I think they handled it well is my point. They handled it well because he is a good looking guy and he is charming and he is doing everything right. And these are things normal people do. The things that are offer external things. It's the house, the cabin, it's dark, it's windy. It's, the, it's not necessarily him setting her alarm bells off. But we know what he did. So we're not falling for and it. And what he's going to do. Right, exactly, exactly. And it's warned throughout. She's not seeing the warnings. And when I say signs, I'm not talking about the signs from the universe like we were discussing earlier. I'm talking about tells from him, like psychological, physical, facial tics, things like that. She's not picking up on them because... We're hypersensitive to them because we know what he is. She doesn't. So some of them, like, for instance, when they're at the refrigerator and she asks him, oh, do you want red or white? And he says, I'm thinking about red. He makes that face, but and he's, he's, he's hand tightening on the fire poker that he's holding. Her back was turned. She didn't see that. Sometimes she'll ask a question that hits a little too close to home for him that makes the his um, nice guy veneer slip a little bit. We're seeing his wheel spin because we know what he is, but she's just thinking, oh, he's taking a, he's taking a moment to thoughtfully answer my questions. So the signs are there. Well, but-, but then when the moment where the shit really hits the fan and she realizes that, you know, she, there's been enough signs from the universe. Well, at that point, her friend said, get the fuck out of the house. 
Well, no, this is no, this is the scene right before that moment. No, this is after dinner. So they have dinner, and she's obviously like he's cooked her this nice meal, and you know she's just sitting there, kind of like zoned out, and like she hasn't eaten anything because I'd imagine her appetite's been lost because she's freaking out. We don't have to talk about my cooking, but it'd be nice to talk at least. What are you thinking about? Mm. When did you get this place? came on the market a few years ago. Why? Have you ever experienced anything weird here before? Weird? What do you mean? Like, um, I don't know. Unexplained stuff? <laughs> do you not want to be here? Oh, no. Uh, what? Then why are you making such a stink? About the cabin. Oh, I'm no, I'm not making a stink. I'm just trying to... Just wondering about your experiences here. <sighs> well, I find that my experiences here are usually quite nice, Meredith. And if you just relax, you might right. feel the same way. Okay. And this is where I will commend the writers and the directors and her performance in this, is that... All right, so like, let's take the serial killerness out of the equation and imagine that this is a very relatable, like, you know, this is a bad date, this is a bad hookup. This it's going south, and how do you handle this as an adult? And I feel like the scene is actually a very good way of of showing that. Maybe we should just go back to the city. What do you mean? We can still spend the weekend together. We just do it at one of our apartments. No, Meredith. We just got here. I just cooked you an entire meal that you barely touched, and I really don't feel like driving back to the city. Let's just relax, have another glass of wine, and enjoy. Okay, I can't. We're fine. I can't. It's fine. No, it's not. It was just a bat. A bat hit the window, okay? It's an old cabin, okay? We're in the woods. We're completely alone out here. Yeah, no, I know. That's the problem. What? You don't want to be here alone with me? No. I'm, no, I mean, yes. You're scared. Yeah, I'm scared. Bruce, I'm not comfortable staying here tonight. Either you drive me home right now or I'm just going to call a ride share. Like she says, hey... I kind of want to go back to the city. And he's like, well, I kind of don't want to drive back because, I mean, I get that. That's annoying. Um, she, But she offers a lot of alternatives. She's like, you know, I'm not saying I don't want to hang out with you for the rest of the weekend. I, I mean, let's just do it at my apartment, your apartment in the city, because something is obviously wrong here. Like she still doesn't think it's him, but she knows something's wrong. And so, you know, he kind of tries to talk her out of it. And then the bat hits the, the thing and she's just like, no, I'm sorry. She's like, and then this is the golden line. She says, I'm not comfortable. I want to leave. If you won't take me back, I will do a ride share. And I'm like, you go, girl, like way to take control. Like you still were being polite because, again, we're taking the serial killer out of the equation. Like, we're assuming that this is just adults that shouldn't be on a date, that, and they're figuring that out. 
Um, or they shouldn't be on a date here. This uh, right. <laughs> and she offered alternatives. Yeah. And then you also see how the person responds. And so he says, okay. And so she goes, okay, well, I need to go to the bathroom to, you know, use the bathroom before the trip and also to collect herself. Because I'd imagine that, you know, that took a lot of bravery and that took a lot of mental, emotional labor because she was polite and she was considering his feelings too. And then she gets the text from the friend that's like, Hey, get the hell out of there. What? That statuette was stolen. When? He must have to recertified it. The night it went up for auction. The police are still investigating. Okay, I already told him that we're leaving, so I'll just... Mayor? You ready? I'm just using the toilet before the long drive. I'll be right out. Did you hear me? I'll be just a sec. There's something else you should know, Meredith. Something bad. The woman who bought the sculpture is missing, too. Okay, um... Um, I'm, I'm gonna text you from the car. The lighting starts to change... Doesn't the owl appear to him and it's like, you know, it's time, you know, is that the moment no, that that no, happens? No, 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 no. She, he's banging okay. on the door. Eventually he stops. He's like, okay, I'll be in the kitchen. And she comes out, walks around the house for a while. Like, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. And he comes up behind her. It's, it's, it's a sneak attack. Okay. Well, and at that, well, that's the moment where I say that they start to enter liminal space because whatever darkness that exists in him manifests on the outside more and starts to swallow. And then... He attacks her. Since you brought up the journey up there, there was something about the bridges and the tunnels, the way they were and used. And the lighting. And the lighting that was giving yeah. me, that was taking me some, like, I felt like this, again, planned purposely, particularly what really drove it home for me. There's a point where they drive into a tunnel, and just as when they drove in the tunnel, just before, she asked, so tell me about your family. Sorry. And they went in the tunnel, everything's dark, and you're getting that noise, the tire noise in the tunnel, like the, the tire noise changes. And his face changes, and all of a sudden, we're someplace else. What about your family? Are you close with your parents? They died when I was a kid. I'm so sorry. I had no idea. Could you? We're just getting to know each other. She asks this very simple question just as they enter the tunnel. So, bam, all the light goes away. Roof. All of a sudden, there's this tone change in the, in the sound. There's this roar to everything based on the tiles in the tunnel. But while they're in that tunnel, while they're in the underworld, if you will, for those few seconds, all of a sudden, he's his true self. The mask is off. Everything about him is dark. And then the second they come out of the tunnel and the light hits and the sound goes away, bing, he's himself again. It was a masterful moment. Dark and light. Like the timing was perfect. Mm -hmm. It was so smart. It was so smart. But, well, I mean, I think that this movie is just so smart in its like psychology and like just like, again, it's like these conversations around consent and around 
like getting yourself out of uncomfortable situations and like also the red flags of like narcissism and sociopaths. And, you know, I mean, just about every abusive relationship I've gotten myself out of, I've really had to sit down and be like, this person revealed themselves to me probably the first time I met them. And then I play back in my brain and I'm like, yeah, they totally did this. They said this, like they had like one of those, like, you know, they're totally prim and proper one second. And you say, well, what about your dad? And they're like, don't talk to me about my dad, you know? And you're like, <laughs> like, all right, red flag. This, this trip would have been over for me when he wouldn't let me pee. Oh, look at that. Do you want to stop and get some snacks? I could actually really use the bathroom. Meredith, we're so close. Uh, if you think you can hold it, I'd love to get to the cabin and get settled in. Uh, okay, sure. You're the best. Oh, no, 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 no. First of all, her bladder control is amazing because she doesn't go for like another two hours. It seems like, <laughs> well, she wants to stop the pee and he's just like, no, I just want to get up there. I want to get up there. I must have missed that, but that's like- Oh, 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 Matthew, 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 Matthew. What was so great was that I was said I was watching with people the other night and this, ha- this scene happens and one of the women in the room goes, red flag. And as soon as she said that, they panned by the fruit stand that she wants to stop at. They're literally red flags waving <laughs> at the car. <laughs> Oh my God. I need to check that out. Yeah. And I said, I said, A, that was funny. A, that would have been a deal breaker for me. And then I had to get into his head. I said, that makes sense because if you stopped at this fruit stand, someone's going to recognize this attractive, well-dressed woman. Someone's going to remember her tomorrow. I've taken her out of state for a reason. Uh, I never thought about it. But we can't step. I'm sorry. That's criminal psychology. I have to get in their heads. It's what I do. It's not a, not a pretty place. See you, Patrick. Ding dong. Patrick from the future here. At this point in the show, Matthew and I shared stories about times where we both found ourselves out of town, away from home with people and began to realize that we were in a situation where we were not safe. I have decided to cut these stories from the show. We didn't name any names, but I think just for our safety and the people involved, it's best just to leave them out. We might reference these stories later in a vague way. So if you hear that, this is what we're talking about, but you can't hear it. Does that make sense? I hope so. Back to the show. Since you mentioned being in abusive relationships, I've been in a few myself, Um, not just romantic ones, but also like with family and friends that were abusive psychologically and things like that. So I've got scars from that. And sometimes I'll find myself in a situation where I have a knee jerk reaction to something. I'll realize I'll realize later you are overreacting to nothing. And so I was also in Meredith's shoes here because I'm going, she's probably having that same conversation in her head as well, going, am I overreacting based on what I've already been through? Like, So I identified with Meredith to going, you know what, is that me? Is that is that my abuse in my head bringing that along, alarm bell? Is that just me overthinking? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. You, you're, you're actually with a, a, a certifiably crazy person or yeah. in the case of the situation I was in, I was like, okay, this is a, you know, a person with money and a person that's used to getting their way all the time. Mm. And Oh, privilege. We love another, privilege. Well, the whole privilege conversation is in this movie without like necessarily saying men are inherently dangerous and terrible. It's just this man is an extreme example. You know, there's an, a difference between extreme examples and then things that happen every day. So I feel like it, it did a good job like illustrating that, but I think like wealth is definitely a like, and then good looking privilege is definitely a theme. So none of the plans that Meredith comes up with to get out of the situation 
safely pay off for her. She is attacked, and it looks like she's killed. She puts up a hell of a battle, but eventually she's lying there on the floor for a really long time. It's a long time before we find out otherwise. He strips her down to her panties. He breaks her phone. He throws away all her belongings. He jerks off of the sink. He's languishing in the situation. And just to go back to a point Matt said earlier, we find out that thing that he said about intimacy was a lie. I lied in the car earlier. This is my favorite part. And at this point, I was so heartbroken that I almost turned the movie off. You know what? I'm not happy with this because it looks like she's dead. Like, I did not go through all this to watch this fabulous woman die like this. This is not okay. And literally just I picked up the remote was when all of a sudden she sat up and clocked him in the head with that statue. Like, all right, I'm back in. I lied in the car earlier. This is my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Wait, back in. Okay. Again, going back to the the, the Jalo like thing is, I mean, that is sort of Argento's thing is that he usually takes an artist. You know, sometimes it's a man, but more oftentimes than not, it's a woman. Like, so there's a very talented smart intelligent person that just gets tortured the whole movie so i was kind of with you i was like okay is this gonna be like that and again it's just like you kind of have to wonder where the misogyny and that like lines up but yeah well full disclosure patrick like this is why i'm really glad that you recommended watching it twice is the first viewing of the movie I realized that he got hit in the head, but I guess I didn't realize it was her. And so I just thought, I'm like, okay, like the Furies are coming, like this liminal space, like he's killed this woman and now this is her ghost. Because like when she's wearing the mask and stuff, I was like, okay, she's just a ghost now. Like, Well, she's that not- wasn't sure about that too. I wasn't, the first time through, I was not sure about that either. I'm like, is she dead but or is she not the dead? the very end when she's there, there's like, you know, like shut the fuck up or whatever she says at the end of it. Like, I was like, wait, a minute and then like and then the last shot of the movie which we'll talk about at the end like um you know i was i was like no she was alive and so this is the moment where you really do have to ask yourself like how much of this was going on in his head and how much of what was really happening in the waking world no no you're absolutely right part of me also has to say when we're dealing with greek mythology we're dealing with gods goddesses Mm -hmm. What's the difference if it's in your head or really happening? Because I like if they're like, why can't they just why can't they just make the inside of your head a living hell? And this was their plan the whole time. Because because what did she hit him with, Matt? What did she hit him with? She hit him with the statue. She hit him with the actual furies. Well, and then she also spilled blood, his blood on the statue. So, again, if this is a ritualistic piece, you know, I mean, she's already fed them his blood. Uh So I was like, that's when I'm sort of like, okay, this is when the Furies 
totally are welcome. So in here's the play in the play with the Furies. That's li- the, they start like when she sits up here. She sets up uh, the, the scene afterwards. It's all we're very dreamlike. Where yeah. she's act like she's there in her brown panties and they're rolling around the floor. Like nothing happened. Like they had a wonderful night making love. And he tells that weird dream that he had. Which- there was this black and white checkered floor all around me. And I knew if I stepped on a black square, I'd fall through forever. So I was trying to keep my feet on the white squares. But then I realized there were no white squares. Well, I kind of feel like that's the window into the what the weekend could have been. been. Yeah, should have been. Yeah, like, I mean, that was the weekend that she that had. That part I murdered you, that was a bad dream. No, it's not. Now, that dream that he had is super important and super symbolic, but I want to circle back to that later because what's amazing here is that she takes a beat, she looks at him, she kind of smiles, and she says, Enter the chorus of furies questing like hounds. What? Enter the chorus of furies questing like hounds. Rightly, he's very confused, but instead of repeating herself, all of a sudden, Katie, the art broker that we saw killed in the first scene, all of a sudden, she's added to the mix. She pops up over her shoulder and she says, Clear is here the trace of him we seek. Follow the track of blood. Silent sign. Now, I'm an old theater queen. So I've been around the block long enough to recognize iambic pentameter when I hear it. Da 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 da. And I just heard it. So I did some Googling and boom, I was right. Ho, oh, clear is here the trace of him we seek. Follow the track of blood. The silent sign is indeed from Greek theater. It's from the trilogy The Orestia, written by Aeschylus. And not only that, Meredith's line, Enter the Chorus of Furies, Questing Like Hounds, is the actual stage direction in the text of the play. So it's like Meredith is the stage manager. She gives the Furies their cue to enter, and the rest of the movie belongs to them, and poor Barry don't know what hit him. What are you saying? All your secrets are escaping. Well, you get to enter the Greek chorus. You know what I mean? Like that's, again, it's a device. Well, Patrick, can we back up just, uh, sorry, go ahead and finish your point, but I want to back up to the liminal space conversation. Here's the track of He We Seek. Follow the track of blood, the silent sign. We snuff along the the scent of dripping gore. The blood woke him up. (laughs) We got the scent now and we're never going to let you go. Absolutely. So, not to get too, I, I mean, uh, too woo about this, but I mean, I feel like I would be remiss to my philosophy if I don't present my theory on this. So you're talking about, okay, like what's the difference between it being in your head and being in reality? So in a lot of magical traditions, there is sort of like this idea that there's an upper world and a lower world. And then the world, the waking world we're in is in the middle. And so those worlds overlap into each other. So things can come and meet in this world. I identify as a shaman. And journey work is kind of one of my wheelhouses. And so what that is, is that basically you can kind of go into a trance and you can go to these places. And 
like, you know, some people call it the underworld. Some people call it heaven. Like, you know, I mean, it's like all different names, like the Norse mythology have the world tree, you know, there's all this stuff and it's usually divided into three sections. So there's the conscious mind, the subconscious, the higher self, like all, like it's all layered. So in my mind, because there were very real world things that had to happen, Meredith was probably pulled aside by the Furies and they were like, listen, this guy is a piece of shit and we're here, we're here now, like you're protected, we're going to protect you, but we actually need someone to, li- to literally pull the trigger because we need people to like move chairs and things like do very physical world things. So I think it was a combination of her being possessed by them because the other women show up and there are three physical, like, you know, because we do see that the bodies are in barrels outside. I think there's a corporeal element to it, but I do think that like, for instance, that scene you just talked about, that was very much in his head, but in this liminal space and in this extreme situation where the shit has really hit the fan, I think that, there's a lot happening on all three of these planes of existence. Excellent. It's a much better way of describing. Yes. That's kind of how I feel too. Like there's, there's an element that's happening in real time. Like for instance, okay. The rest of the movie is him being tormented by the furies in various mm-hmm. different ways. And one of the, manifest- they're just going to kill him. They're going to torture him and then kill him. Or do they, <laughs> or do they? We'll come back to that. Um, yeah. There's a scene at the dinner table. He's there naked, and uh, she's there as Giuseppe, the, the one with she's there with her snakes and her and her, and her Greek tragedy mask, mm-hmm. which is so it just like gave me such a like costume design like feels. I'm like, oh, so Grecian, it's so beautiful. I, I love it. Believe that conversation. And her voice was so beautiful too, like coming out of that mask. Like I just, you know, yeah. I believe that conversation happened. I'm like, I could see her asking these questions. Why did you choose me? Why did you pick me? Take you. Yes, why did you ask me out? I didn't. What does that mean? I don't choose. He does. The floating piece inside you decides who you're going to kill? (sighs) Yeah, exactly. I fully believe that this long interrogation scene is happening in real time for Meredith, that she is sitting there alone with Barry and she's there with wounded with her, with her throat duct tape closed in her tarp because he burned all of her clothes. And she is asking him these questions and it's just the two of them. And it's completely normal. However, from his point of view, because of that head injury, he's seeing the furies. That is also true. He's having a delusion because of his head injury, head injury. And yet I also fully believe that there is godly presence. There is an otherworldly presence guiding both guiding all of this, that they are working through Meredith, that they are guiding her words. It's like what you were saying earlier, that there, there are three levels happening at the same time. There's reality, this delusion and the otherworldly, but the lines are blurred and how you're perceiving them is where you're sitting. I don't know how, I, does any of this make sense? Am I making any sense? Well, that was the therapy scene. 
like so this is where it's like the furies use therapy and it's it's not just physical torture it's also psychological but then you could oh it's funny it's funny you say therapy i said this is being grilled by the by the prosecution well that's what i was also yeah. saying is like again if we're going back to what's i'm going to give you a chance to plead your case well, good luck if, well if we're going back to <laughs> what is happening with Meredith? Like, like if we were not seeing what was going on in his head and we actually had like a spy camera in that living room or whatever, and we were watching it Mm -hmm. in my mind, I think Meredith is like, this guy like is insane, but he's obviously not going to hurt me now. So because I'm going to take advantage of the fact that this guy is in a trance and I'm going to sit down with him and be like, okay, I'm going to get information that the police want. How many women have there been? Oh, I don't know. The few? Who's buried in the woods? Kate and Leonora. This is a new collection. He gave the names of the women. He told her where they were. He also mentioned that there were others, that this was a new collection. So mm-hmm. that you might have to take with a grain of salt because that dude might be like, you know, Charles Manson blew up a lot of shit. John Wayne Gatesy blew up a lot of shit. Oh, I, I, I take, I take, I speak at this point. I think that he's proud of that. Oh, this is a new one. Well, because yeah. I think, and again, we're talking about, like, it, cause it echoed, it echoed a line that, that, um, the blonde woman said earlier, she's like, oh, do you like my connection? It's still a baby, but she's growing. Yeah. Well, and, and so it's his. Well, and also so like, you know, it's sort of, you know, that it's a control thing. Like, you know, if you're losing power, which this guy obviously is, and when criminals get caught, mm-hmm. knowledge is power. So they're like, okay, well, you know, maybe there's more victims, maybe there's not. So mm-hmm. that kind of puts a suspicion on the police and prosecutors yeah. Yeah, as yeah, to, yeah. you know, did True. they really get it all? I mean, chances are probably because this person's lying, but, you know, but there's that, what, you what, know. What, yeah. Also from my criminal psychology background, which I all thought interesting here, I want to get into the whole red owl thing um, that he blames on everything. He's, he's confessing, but he's not. He, mm-hmm. Because with, with murderous, uh, murderers like this, serial killers, they often do have that entity they blame, that part in their head that they blame, and they think that leaves them somehow exonerated. Like they are also a victim. It's not me. It's him. He's being truthful here. He thinks he is. But they know the truth. Well, and I think that that's uh, why... I, I, I don't know how to describe it. Like, I think that's why, like, the baby to... owl, like, comes out and stuff because they're oh, basically okay. kind of like... They cut the head off the owl and they kind of show that there's this thing, this hellraiser thing inside. And, you know, Trent made a really good point. He was like, you know, I kind of saw that as them revealing to him that no, this wasn't, you know, the devil made me do it. It was like, no, this thing inside of you is you. And. Oh, look at your big, scary monster. Now this is your big, scary monster without the mask. It's a cartoon. Yeah. Ooh, I'm so scared. Um, since I'm going to bring this up now, um, all of the uh, characters in this, except for Meredith, oh, she might be, but I couldn't, her Googling Meredith tanning didn't bring up anything but tanning salons, but Bruce Ernst is named after the artist Max Ernst, 
And I figured that out because he said, sometimes lines will pop out at me that are too weird not to mean something. And he said at some point, is transformed into flesh without flesh. Mount Superior was transformed into flesh without flesh. And I Googled that. And that brought up Max Ernst, whose actual quote was, Lop Lop, the bird superior, is transformed into flesh without flesh. Max Ernst was a surrealist artist whose alter ego was a giant bird named Lop Lop. Except instead of inspiring him to kill people, it inspired him to create art. Yeah, yeah, no, I know exactly who this is. I'm Googling it as we're looking at it. And now that, like, I really look at it, I was like, the style of the costumes is definitely there. Yeah. that, And it's repeated throughout the, the, the movie as well. Oh, yeah. Like, this painting here is definitely that scene. Like, I mean, that, yeah, explains, exactly. that explains so much now. Like, yeah, I love that. And again, further proof that things are timeless. Our, 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 our broker, uh, Kate Horna, is named after... Katie Horner. There's a part where we're still in Meredith's apartment where we see books on her shelf, and Katie Horner is right there. She's another surrealist photographer that dealt with with women le- women left behind in the Spanish. Her photography is all about the Spanish American War. Ding dong, Patrick from the future. I meant the Spanish Civil War and how the women left behind had to rebuild everything and how they bared the suffering of men who just went off to fight those stupid games Mm -hmm. and also did surrealistic photography. Well, and Marina Abramovich was there too, who is like a big influence on me. And I mean, Marina Abramovich is all about endurance and, you know, like how suffering is sort of a process, you know, like. And whose house are we in? The house originally belonged to Leonora. The, the opening quote of the film and another book sitting on Katie, uh, Reddit's bookshelf is from, I mean, sorry, Leonora Carrington, another surrealist artist, and also a writer who wrote extensively about her own nervous breakdown. In her art and her writing, she always used to have these man, half man, half animal figures. And she wrote that that was not surreal for me. That was literally the way I saw the world. That was reality for me. And entities that are half human have animal are featured frequently throughout the movie on my other show demi uncle lewis i talk a lot about how in screenwriting a lot of times the name that writers give characters is often a shortcut to help you figure out what that character is all about like for the actor maybe not so much for the audience but when i first heard the name kate horna in the auction scene i said that's a weird name i wonder if it means something and then when three minutes later i saw it on a book i said okay these names must be important and so in this one shot you see the three books that are sitting there and two of the characters are named after the the authors of those books i said this has got to mean something so i go down a rabbit hole and here we are and the other book on the table meredith nightstand is um remedios varo performance artist who was all about how her most famous piece was a performance piece where she for six hours she got naked and like had a table set out with all these various instruments and said, you can do whatever you want to me with those instruments. And some are definitely for pain and some are for pleasure. And she said, had I not stopped it, they would have killed me. Yeah. Like everybody was timid at first, but after a while there's this, there's monsters inside all Well, of there's a moment. And here we are. Yeah. There's a moment where I think when you've given that kind of permission over people get giddy and then they go into it. Like, we did a Marina Abramovich. Lord of the Flies, yeah. Well, we did a Marina Abramovich burlesque show like a couple years ago, mm. and um, there was a performer that did that that thing, and things mm. got weird. 
like things mm-hmm. got really, really weird. Like they actually pulled someone aside, like, and we're like, um, so we need to talk to you about that because yes, you were given permission, but that was still like kind of sadistic and, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. Yeah. But I'm glad that you brought that up because I was kind of curious as to what the hollows Eve LP in that one scene where she's getting ready and she pulls out the LSD one. I'm not sure, Matt, there's so much visual information with her just wandering the house. Like that portrait on his wall that we keep seeing has got those four scratches like his, there's a red room. There's, there's one room that's red that's all dedicated to his monster. It's the portrait with the four scratches. There's those sculptures of hands in claw-like poses. There's another, there's a picture of a man that's a half man, half bird. Everything. There's gr- the, the plastic grapes falling off the, uh, off the bookcase. Like everything, every element is so carefully chosen. Yeah. There are scenes that are framed by windows all the time. I don't notice every time I look through windows, it's in triptych, like the paintings that we keep seeing. Always, like everything is so well thought out. And I probably lost everybody. They're so bored right now. Because we're, <laughs> we're talking about art stuff, but. No, I mean, I think that that's like, there's, I mean, I guess our point in, in talking about all of this is there's lots of rabbit holes to go down. Like that's how, like, mm-hmm. you know, this plot is so simple, but the um, subtext is dense and uh, rich. I think that, you know, so we have the therapy scene and then I think that that segues into the bargaining scene when he's finally like, you know, he takes the statue and he goes outside to the crossroads. Clearly it can't be about me. Clearly it's just the statue that they want. If I give it back, I'll be fine. They understand me now. I'm an innocent victim and you saved me from the big red monster. You cut his head off and now I see my problem. No fucker. No. Well, I mean, I, I love that. Like it, like the one line where he's like, I, despite what you've seen, I'm really not a bad. (laughs) Sure. But like, that was the moment when I was just like, no dude, the only way, the only way forward is through like you surrender. Like you, like you get on your knees, lay down, let them chop your head off because do you remember what his dream was when they first after the murder and she wakes when he wakes up and she's there and he says oh my gosh i had that dream again last night there was this black and white checkered floor all around me and i knew if i stepped on a black square i'd fall through forever so i was trying to keep my feet on the white squares but then i realized there were no white squares good and evil man you think you think you have this battle going on inside of you between good and evil and that the, the part of me that's good and the part that's bad and if i go over there it's bad so i'm gonna stay on these white squares and be good there's no good in you you just think there is you fucker <laughs> you're garbage right well this is the point in the movie where like i when i was mentioning to you before like how i feel like the resolution to this, like the, what's the spiritual catharsis and what's next is like the sequel. So that's where I was like, okay, now again, this is an extreme example because this is a serial killer. So when I mentioned this to Trent, he was like, well, Matt, I think this guy just needed to be destroyed and there was no resurrection. So that's where I was just like, you know, again, this dude is too narcissistic, too crazy to, to draw a line in the sand and be like, Hey, I fucked up and I'm not going to do this. So if we take it into a real life, real person, that's not crazy, sociopathic territory. Okay. You've made some mistakes in your life. Okay. Well, learn, reflect, and then let that part of you die. And then the new version of you is 
mature yeah. wives and will make but better most choices. people didn't piss off goddesses <laughs> they're not known for being forgiving well but we'll see no i i i disagree i disagree i actually think yeah well i mean i think that kali is very forgiving and that's the okay. thing greek that, greek greek well, no i think that the the fury i think hikate like then that goes back to when the furies then become Ikate again. They become the fate, like the non-extreme pissed off feminine energy. It's just, it goes back to being like, no, maternal, calm, nurturing, etc. So that's, um, so I, I kind of feel like it's, um, again, this is an extreme example, but in the, the, how this plays out in a normal situation is they're incredibly forgiving. They want you to do better. They want you to Meredith evolve. <laughs> There's still darkness in you, Bruce. I can see it. It's right there. Bruce, there's still a lot of darkness inside you, and I can see it. It's right there. Go fuck yourself. And then the final shot of the movie is just her sitting there watching him die. Did he though? Because he keeps yeah. he keeps ripping at his throat and 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 it's this the the shot lasts uncut for like three minutes of him doing this over and over and over and over and I said wasn't Sissy Fuss another person who was punished to do something forever? Mm-hmm. Like, I could I almost picture like I can almost picture now that Meredith might be dead, and this is this is just his hell now. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. Rip- belittle myself in front of this woman I killed forever. Or maybe she's not dead. Maybe this is all happening in his head. Maybe this is his madness. This is the cell in his mind. It's happening at all three levels. Why not? Uh, Or maybe it's both. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was saying. Personally, I kind of left the second viewing thinking that Meredith was alive. I did too. And that she was literally, you know, for her own mental health, was like, I am going to sit here and watch this man die until he is dead. And then, and I know he's dead. Like, I'm not going to assist in making it quicker. I'm not, it was not a good death. Like, I mean, it was probably a slow, painful death, which, I mean, he deserved. She made, she, she tricked him into picking up part of his brain. (laughs) She tricked him into, oh, you just pull out the dark part. Oh no, it's still in there. Sorry. (laughs) I also love that it was, um, a way to get you to sit through the credits. Yeah. Trent was a little 
disturbed by that. And I mean, admittedly, I was too. Like all day yesterday, I kept thinking about that shot. But the more I thought about it and the more time I had to digest it, the more powerful and the more I appreciated it. I was like, she. I didn't get the impression she was enjoying watching him die, but she needed to see the monster die in order to like move forward and not be... I mean, she's going to be traumatized, but she could you know, put it aside. She's going to be a hero. But, she's going to be a hero. Think of all the book deals. Think of all the celebrity. Think of all the good press she's going to have. And this is all happening on his altar too. Like this is like, the, it's happening in front of those canisters. This monster is subjugating himself in front of all three of his victims. Katie and Lenora are in those garbage cans that are over there. And this was supposed to be Meredith's grave too. So even though Meredith is the only one still left alive to play judge, jury, and executioner all by herself, all three women are still represented. They're all present. And since these are the three women that have been embodying the Furies the whole time, the Furies are present too. Good, old-fashioned, merciless justice. Um, it's a powerful movie. I thought, like we said, so much going on. So much going on. We, yeah. we didn't even scratch the surface, which is amazing. You could, There's so many rabbit holes to go down through. Uh, one of the complaints I've heard about, it, particularly when the, the Furies start showing themselves physically in this realm, the people are like, all of a sudden it turns really cheap and it looks like a college theatrical production. I said, well, of course it looks like a theatrical production. It's Greece. They're Greek. Yeah. They invented theater. The theater was invented to worship the gods or teach lessons about the gods. So, yeah, this is perfect way for them to, to, to manifest. Well, and also, like, what's what's wrong with that? Like, you know, I mean, I'm really like, you know, I became an artist in a college theater situation. I mean, the colleges I went to actually did some of the most interesting theater I have seen, even more interesting than Broadway in New York. Like, I mean, I will flat out say that. Like, I mean, some of the stuff we did in, in undergrad. Why, what are you doing it for art's sake and not, not to make a buck? It's different. Right. Yeah. They do a lot of Greek stuff in college because of everything I said before about the Greeks. And then also it's free and it's also, you know, budget wise, like masks and hymantions or togas. Like, you know, I mean, you could do that relatively inexpensive. So, I mean, I kind of feel like that's like, a, I don't see that as an insult or a criticism. I actually think that the, you know, that makes me love it even more. And I understand why a lot of people find stuff jarring. Like I initially, when you see the squid thing underneath the bird custom, like what's happening? Are we a comedy now that I thought about? It. I'm like, Oh, I get it. That Yeah. No, I get it now. Cause the scene happens right after this dinner trial scene that we talked about earlier that we touched on where he blamed everything on the big evil owl that lives inside of me. It's not me. It's him. He's so scary and I can't control him. He's presented with a physical manifestation of the big red owl. The Furies take a laser and chop its head off. And underneath it is this, this ridiculous looking octopus Cthulhu squid thing that's adorable with little googly eyes. I said, oh, is this the big monster? Cutting him down and cutting through that hubris of his. Also things like you mentioned the, when he tells uh, Meredith gets, well, sorry, Trisephone gets him to pull the dark part out of his brain. And it's like a little bird thing. Help me understand, Bruce. Dig deeper. Show me the piece that's floating inside you. Dig it out. I can see people going, what the fuck is going on? And getting turned off by that. I I had um, a similar moment with that, but then when I was really thinking, we were dissecting that moment 
with all of us, Cubby, Trent, and I, and um, we sort of arrived at what we said earlier is that with like it was him being like, oh, it was the owl, it was the owl, it was the owl, the Bohemian Grove mm-hmm. owl, which I wondered if that was a thing too, but like, um, and then. But they were like, no, you think it's this big bad thing. Well, it's just this little like embryonic. It's a little baby, little baby bird. It's a little baby bird. Yeah, like and smash, you know what I mean? Like the, comparatively speaking, your darkness is nothing compared to us. Like because you're just a little mortal. Like you're just a little, you know. And by the way, that darkness, yes, that darkness isn't a part of your brain. It's all of you. Yeah. There's nothing to redeem here. <laughs> well, and I think that that's like the another co- theme in this is the uh, is accountability. Like, you know, we are not an accountable culture, but yet we're obsessed with it. And then that's sort of the crossroads we're at right now is what does accountability look like? What does um what's the word restorative justice look like? Like, what are we going to do with people that do horrible things in our society or things that are maybe even like neutral? Like they were like a good person made a bad choice or got in a bad situation. So someone's messed up. They've learned from it. So is this person forever a monster? Because that is very like, you know, white, you know, Eurocentric way of looking at, crime is it's like okay the world is divided into monsters and yeah. good people yeah. and i was like well that's kind of dehumanizing the human experience is is full of gray area stuff yeah and context is important and um and i mean i think the true crime genre is really bringing this all to a head because we're sort of like okay people are obsessed with these things and yet we shouldn't be putting these people on pedestals you know, it's all very interesting. Yeah, no, and no easy answers. So, no, no, no. easy. We I mean, do love, we do, answer. we do love to talk about you know reforming and getting better and starting a new self, but we also really love to remember people what their worst. Yeah, like oh, he's better now. Like oh, well, he, like he was like I don't know. I'm just saying like oh, he was an alcoholic before. He was a violent drunk. He's better now, but you know, never really gonna let him forget that one time. Or I don't well, not, like, not let him forget, but that's something you know, tend to hold on to. Like, yeah. But this movie is brilliant. Uh, yeah. Like, it's just brilliant. Yeah. And yeah, like just doing the research for it this morning when I was, I, there was so many rabbit holes to go down. And like, I, I love that in a film. I love a film that's a challenge. But you don't have to know any of that and you can still enjoy the movie. Oh, I agree. Like, I mean, it's just sort of like a feast for the eyes. Like, I feel like I could tell yeah. somebody to watch it and just be like, you know what, don't, like my sister isn't particularly interested in Greek mythology and stuff. And I would just be like, Melissa, you know what? Just sit back, enjoy the visuals, enjoy the story. And then, you know, if you have questions, we'll, we'll talk about it. You don't need a degree in theater to appreciate this movie. Like, just when you talk about that, the thing that came to my head was again, that dinner scene where she's sitting there in that mask and the snakes are slowly arriving on her. They're not in her hair. Every time they cut back, there's another snake and another snake. And it's so delicious. It's so delicious. Which one of you kissed me? Sorry? Which one of you kissed me? Was it him or was it you? (sighs) Me. He can't be intimate. So you also find me attractive. Oh, yes. Meredith. You're stunning. And unlike him, you can act on those feelings. Somewhat. 
Who saw me first? I don't remember. You don't remember if you saw me first and he had to call you off so he could kill me or if he's the one who pointed me out to you in the first place? No. It doesn't work like that. You don't understand. No. I can't imagine that I would. Well, what a great way to like create tension. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, the shit is hitting the fan. Like, like the scene when she came out of the bathroom and the lighting was different. And then just like the colors pop differently. And I'm like, the world that you shut the door on in that bathroom is not the world you opened your door up to. I've also heard people complaining that the blood's too red. But that's jello for you. I made that comment earlier. Is that's like Argento, like that's that's the style choice. I mean, there's an Italian feel to everything. Like just thinking that scene in the museum, the three women sitting there felt like it could be in the 70s because they often happened in among, you know, high class people in an art scene. That's where a lot of them took place anyway. But when I watched this past time, it's like it's even too red for giallo blood. Oh, it's red like paint. Well, I think oftentimes that's what they use. Because this is about art. It's about art. It's literally the lifeblood of, of art is paint. I had a friend that was an EMT for a while and he told me, I mean, he saw some really gory like accidents and things like that, but he told me that stuff looked faker in real life than it did in movies. Like that was the thing that he was kind of more surprised about. And I was like, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So I think there's something to be said about when something is so obviously fake that it is even more jarring. Like the scene with the pomegranates, like that are all cut open. Like that ain't pomegranate juice. Like pomegranate pomegranate juice is much like more purple. It's like a darker, it's like blue red. And so like, I'm like, okay, no, that's paint. Like, or that was fake Not blood. whatever world we're in now. Cause we're we, like, we're in three places at once, according to you. And I love that theory. All right, Matthew. Please remind people where they can find out more about you and follow you on your social media. Tell me about Baron Von Soap. Awesome. I am most active on Instagram. It's my favorite platform. So it's MattKnife3. And I also have my art page, which is uh, Matthew Z. Kessler Art. Um, and that's just where I post my paintings. And then I have Baron Von Soap. And Baron Von Soap is a cold process soap company that I started in 2020 um, because I the hand washing being was such an epiphany for everybody, and I was kind of surprised about that because like I'm a doctor's kid, so hand washing was always very ingrained into my. I mean, it's so logical. It was my way of sort of being like, okay, everyone's making masks right now. I don't want to be sitting here at a sewing machine during lockdown because that's what I do for a living. I'd rather be sewing things I want to work on. So, and I also knew that the soap company would extend once the pandemic was over and, you know, just sort of, it took off. Uh, I have an Etsy page, Baron Von Soap. I actually am currently collaborating with Paul Taylor, pinhead Paul Taylor, um, about uh, pinhead soap. So I'm very, I'm going to be doing that soon with him and... I'm guessing the pinhead soap would be very exfoliating because of all the pins. Uh, yes, actually. <laughs> we were talking about that. <laughs> it's been really exciting talking to him and collaborating with him about it because, Patrick, I know you've been to enough like horror cons and cons in general. Sometimes you notice that fans are not necessarily the 
freshest smelling people. <laughs> you know, going back to men and male behavior, it's like, you know, you could shame these people and be like, nerds, like, you know, wash your asses and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Maybe, you know, not everyone was raised the same. So, you know, maybe offering a product like that is enough to, and, and just being like, you know what, just like use it. Like, you know, self-care is sexy. It's good for your mental health. And also the bonus thing is you smell good. And then, you know, girls will want to have sex with you. So <laughs> like, you know, Yay. so it's, um, I'm very excited because I feel like it's normalizing male grooming and hygiene. I have to say, I, when you told me that you were making soap, I want to support, but I have really sensitive skin and I'm allergic to everything, like particularly smells. Not so much allergic, but extremely sensitive, like certain colognes and perfumes. If I'm in the elevator with someone who's wearing just a little of it, my nose is on fire. And by the time I get out of the elevator, it's running like a faucet. My eyes are burning. It's not pretty. It's not cute. Well, I'm thrilled that you have this entrepreneurial idea and that you're making it happen. And I want to support that. At the same time, there's this lingering fear that I'm going to buy your product and then, bam, I'm going to have a face full of acne and my sinuses will explode. So when I made my first purchase, I did it extremely carefully and put a lot of thought into it because I looked at all of your soaps and I looked at all the scents and I said, okay, you have a beard shampoo that's scented like rosemary. I have a beard. It needs to be shampooed. And I love the smell of rosemary. I cook with it all the time. That shouldn't be a problem. And lo and behold, it wasn't. And not only was it not a problem, it was fabulous. I've bought enough of Matt's products now to know that they work for me. I do not have reactions to them. And the scents are lovely and not cloying. I don't smell like whatever it's supposed to be like for the rest of the day. It's just enough. Just enough to configure you to kind of smell it like while you're using it. And then maybe like if you smell your hands or whatever, you can kind of smell it a little bit. Thank you for saying that, Patrick, because I really did like formulate this soap with like dry skin in mind, with uh, people of color skin needs in mind. I have eczema. So like that's there. My sister has really horrible dry skin and it helps her skin. Like, I mean, this is why cold process soap is so great for you. Mm. Also, probably just as a note too, if you have these kind of allergies, it's usually because people are really uh, allergic to the fragrance oil. So um, some of my soaps do contain fragrance oils. Some of them just have essential oils. So, um, and I do have a completely free and clear soap, which is called Ghost because again, goth. And it doesn't smell like anything. So it's very cute and cheeky. But um, I'm glad to hear that, you know, you've arrived at something that you enjoy and you can use. Living alone, like I go through soap real slow. So, so I have like 10 bars of different matte, matte knife soaps in the in the bathroom. But no, they're, they're a great little investment. And they're in fun shapes and colors. Well, you know what I would recommend? And I've been like kind of telling people this because some of the bars last longer than mm. others. I was like, you know, open one up and put it in your kitchen sink. And then that's your hand washing bar. Or like, you know, open up three of them and just line them up in your bathtub. And, you know, today you use the leather soap. Tomorrow you use the blah, blah, blah to the other. So like, you know, you don't necessarily have to use one until it's over in order to, you know... Because I, I, I've gotten into that too. Like I, like I have stuff here, and I'm like, oh, it's I have to save this for a special occasion. I'm like, every day is a special occasion when it comes to so. All right, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for talking about this crazy kooky movie. Enjoy the rest of your day. Stay safe, stay healthy, and most of all, stay fabulous. Thank you, thank you for having me, and you too, Patrick. Wow, 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 wow. That 
was fabulous. And believe me when I say we didn't even come close to scratching the surface of everything that's going on in A Wounded Fawn. But before I give you my final thoughts on the movie, I have to say once again, thank you to the fabulous Matt Knight for coming on and bringing his very unique perspective and his expertise on this subject. It would not have been anywhere near as fabulous without him. Can I say fabulous more? Yes, I can, as a matter of fact, because Matt Knife has been generous enough to make a fabulous offer to the fabulous listeners of Scream Queens. So if you want to try out some Baron Von Soap soap, now is a great time to do it. Now, I mentioned that I use the Rosemary Beard Soap. That's because I'm a basic bitch. Not that there's anything wrong with that, because Baron Von Soap has a wide range of varieties with safe, respectable fruit scents and herb scents, like the sweet and spicy orange clove or the sweet but slightly spooky cherry blood. But the thing you have to remember that Matt is also a wicked and a witch. So there's a side to Baron Von Soap that takes you away to places dark and exotic and mysterious and just a little bit dangerous. Discover ancient mysteries with Kefi Egyptian Temple Incense Soap or if you dare have a moment of Bacchanalian reverie with Hecate herself with Hecate's decadent red wine soap. And thanks to the generosity of Matt Knife, there is no better time than right now for you to explore the dozens of varieties to choose from at Baron Von Soap. Because between now and the end of the month, when you visit Baron Von Soap's Etsy store and you enter the code BRUCE, B-R-U-C-E, BRUCE, the name of our villain in tonight's movie, Baron Von Soap, will give you 20% off your purchase of $20 or more. Spend 20, get 20% back. Thanks to Matt Knife. Thank you, Matt Knife. And all that information is down there in the show notes, so use it. It's time for my final thoughts on a wounded fawn. As so often happens, long after I finished the recording session with the guest and I'm pulling audio clips from the movie and I'm assembling the podcast for you to listen to, it gives me a long time to reflect on things. And hearing the dialogue from the movie without without pictures also makes it resonate differently. So a lot of times I come to different conclusions. Now, I would like to point out that Matt Knife is a much kinder person than I am. He's a much gentler, more nurturing soul than I am. I'm a vicious bitch, as you know. So his take on the movie I thought was interesting just because he kept mentioning like the goddess power and how the Furies might actually be redemptive. And he mentioned the similarity to Kali and that Kali kills the part of you that's bad so that the part of you that's good can grow. And I couldn't put it into words at the time, but now that I've had time to sit with the material, I'm going to have to say, I think you're wrong, Matt, and I have the receipts to back it up. Now, the more research that I've done on the Fury since I recorded with Matt is that when they were called in, when they were either summoned by a human or dispatched by the gods to take to unleash their wrath on someone who has committed an unspeakable sin, they could not be called off. Once their fury has been set in motion, it's right there in the Greek verse that they use to introduce the Furies in the movie. Enter the chorus of Fury Enter the chorus of Furies questing like hounds. Follow the track of blood, the silent sign, like to some hound that hunts a wounded fawn. We snuff along the scent of dripping gore. Which means they're like a pack of hunting dogs. They've got the scent of blood in their nose and they cannot be stopped until they taste it. Or if you prefer, they're like an ancient version of Pumpkinhead. It has to run its course. But the thing is, with them, their torture never ends. The Furies don't kill you. That's, that, that's not their thing. They will show you visions. They will torment you. They will mentally torture you. They will spiritually torture you. 
It will never stop. It will never cease. And you will go mad and you might kill yourself. But even then, according to Dante's Inferno, they're waiting for you in the ninth circle of hell. The Furies are the ones who lord over the deepest circle of hell over the worst sinners. So this shit goes on forever. Oh, and by the way, they've managed to do all this without ever laying a finger on you. Nope. They don't kill you. You'll kill yourself. They just showed you who you really were over and over and over. And to back that up too, the image in the statue that's right there at the beginning, it's four figures, it's the three furies, and there's the man they are tormenting. And I didn't notice it until this last time through when I was pulling still images that the male figure, it looks like he's got his dagger held up in battle, but he doesn't. He's actually cutting his own throat. Just like Bruce does in the movie. And the statue has been captured with him in the action of cutting his throat, not after he cut his throat, not when he's dying from cutting his throat. Like, this moment has been captured for eternity in brass. That's why I think this moment with Bruce at the end is going to go on forever. Like, the four figures in the statue, they essentially make a ring. It's a circle. A ring is unbroken. A circle goes on forever. Just spins and it spins and it spins. I think he's stuck in the cycle forever. He's in the ninth circle of hell and good for you. What I, we didn't really make clear is that this whole last reel is like a visual roller coaster that's very similar to the Evil Dead. Like the last reel of the Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. And that's when it hit me. Ah, that's why his name's Bruce. He's a little bit Max Ernst and a little bit Bruce Campbell. Movie makers. So clever. Just another reason I think his punishment is never going to end is because he never says he's sorry. And they psychologically bombard him throughout this last reel of the movie and little bits of his psyche crumble away and parts of his bravado fall. But Bruce is never truly sorry because Bruce thinks this is all about him and not about the women that he killed. Deep down, he thinks it's somehow going to redeem him. And he says that at a certain point in the movie after the whole trial scene that we were talking about at the dinner table where Spirit Meredith is coaxing him to pick that dark part out of his brain. Help me understand, Bruce. Dig deeper. Show me the piece that's floating inside you. Dig it out. This will be cathartic. Will it help purify me? No, Bruce, you're fucked. This will be cathartic for me. And even at the end of the movie, when he's battered and bloody and half blind, confronted with the corpses of the two women he killed, confronted with the wrath of Trisevene slash Meredith, he still thinks it's all about him. You flushed the red owl out. You saved us both. It's over. What? No. We're just beginning. The sun is coming out. The darkness is gone. I mean, the hubris on this prick. You're not the hero of this story. You're not Ebenezer Scrooge. This isn't a Christmas carol. Those are the wrong three ghosts you've got here. They're not kindly ghosts here to teach you a valuable life lesson. They don't serve you. They serve the women you hurt. And if after all this, you still don't get that, go fuck yourself. All right, I think that's going to wrap things up for another episode of Scream Queens. So the past few episodes, I've given you a lot to chew on. There have been heavy movies with lots of things bubbling beneath the surface. So next time, we're going to have some fun and do something silly. The movie that I'm discussing next time is a little ditty from 1964 called Curse of the Living Corpse. 
Well, why are you doing this movie, Patrick? I've never heard of it. Well, I'm doing it because you've never heard of it. And you should have because we love to talk about proto slashers, but this movie never gets listed in there. And what I think is also cool about it is not only is it a slasher movie from 1964, it's a period piece slasher movie because it's taking place sometime in the 1800s. I don't know when it's taking place in a go, but it's a rare thing at a rare time and then doubly rare because it's a period piece. And besides all that boring stuff, blah, 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 it's got one of my favorite things in the entire world. And you know damn well what that is. It's a house full of rich cunts that can't stand each other. They're to hear a reading of the will who get picked off one by one. You know how I love those rich, mean cunts. And we got a mansion full of them. And speaking of rich, mean cunts, my special guest for this episode is going to be the fabulously undead Uncle Spooky from Uncle Spooky Spookerama. So it's going to be super fun. The movie is available on Tubi and Amazon Prime. So check it out and play along at home. We're going to have some fun with Uncle Spooky. Yeah! So I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you haven't already, hit follow or subscribe on whatever podcast listening device. You'll always know when there's a fresh new episode of Scream Queens for your ears. And if you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, just to stay high or tell me about a movie that you've seen that that maybe I haven't heard about or to recommend something for the show, you can find me on social media at Facebook at Scream Queens, where horror gets gay, and I'm on Instagram at Scream Queens Podcast. All those links are down there in the show notes, so please use them. Is that it? I think that's it. Secret Agent Boots says that's it. So until next time, my beautiful, beautiful screamers continue to make the world a more fabulously creepy place. And to do that, all you got to do is follow the Scream Queen's golden rule. Fight or flight. Survive the night. Make it to the final reel. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay fabulous. music for tonight's show, unless otherwise specified, has been written by Sam Haynes. You can find all of his music at www.bandcamp.com. Bitches! <laughs> Ew.